Good evening and welcome to the Pratt Library. It's really my honor to stand before you and to introduce our speaker, Dr. Harold Baum, this evening. Um, and it's fitting that he's here to talk about his book, Brown in Baltimore, because I think most of us or many of us who are citizens and we know the library and the treasure that it is for us, we know a bit of the history of the library and how it was given to the citizens of Baltimore well over 100 years ago with the hopes and desires that everyone, it would be a free library open to all to use the resources, to read the books, to enjoy everything that um, we have and what's going on. Um, and it was done when many times people of color, African Americans, could not use the library and the resources, yet our library was probably one of the first in the country that's opened its doors to everyone and welcomed everyone. I'm not a librarian. I don't even work for the library, but I was really pleased, <laughs> this happens to me, to be um, honored to really to introduce um, what I, Howie, as I call him Howie, and many of us do. I think I first met you, Howie, um, on my first job when I worked a long time ago for um, the mayor of the city of Baltimore. At that time, it was William Donald Schaefer. And we asked him to, I know, I don't look that old. That's what you're supposed to say. But anyway, I know, don't, don't. Okay, I do, I know. All right, so um, we asked him actually to work with us to really evaluate some of the work that we did in human services um, and to see whether um, our plans to really decentralize, I think, some of our, our programming in human services didn't make a lot of sense. And to tell you the truth, I don't remember what he found, but I'm sure that he found that it was very successful, right? Okay, don't answer the question. Then we, we um, our paths really crossed again most recently when the university, the University of Maryland, Baltimore, started a big initiative to bring our schools together, our medical school, law, dental, social work, nursing, pharmacy, uh, public health, to really begin to work in West Baltimore in a place-based initiative to begin looking at what could we do to improve the outcomes of children and families from zero to 21 years of age? Um, and how could we get young people as well as their parents fully engaged in our educational system and to graduate from high school and to go on to college. And as our former president, David Ramsey, said, we won't rest until they begin, uh, they turn, we turn out doctors that live in Upton um, and came from Upton and were educated in Upton and also the University of Maryland School of Medicine. So we're doing that and we turn to Howie to say, help us think through this. What does it mean? How should we begin to work with the community and to do some community organizing? And it was really Aldine, who I must admit is here tonight, and I just want to mention, and you always get in trouble when you start calling out people's names, but Dean Richard Barth from the School of Social Work is here, and his, and his wife, um, Dr. Dickerson, is here, as well as Larry Gibson, one of our professors of the School of Law, and I did see Bob Embry sneak in and sit in the back, and I have to give a shout out to him also, because he is so supportive of the library. Howie has authored many books, um, many chapters, and has done a lot of research on community planning, education, and race over the years. He is right now a professor of urban studies and planning at the University of Maryland College Park. He's also done a lot of community work, and I think some of his most 
recent community work was probably with the Southeast Education Task Force in Southeast Baltimore to enable parents and community members to work with and improve schools. He informed me that he started this book, the book that he's going to talk about this evening about Brown and Baltimore in 2001. So it did take him a long time to do this book, talk to a lot of people, and I'm sure we're going to hear about um, a lot of those stories. But one of the things that struck me, I, I was able to get a copy of the book, is that it really examines the history of school desegregation in Baltimore as a way of understanding American difficulties in dealing with race and public policy. We know that Baltimore school board officials voted to desegregate the schools in Baltimore and adopted a free choice policy, which I'm sure we're going to hear quite a bit tonight, that made integration voluntary. Baltimore school desegregation proceeded um, peacefully, and I remember that I was, um, as a young student, I was at school 18, which I'm not sure if that's the picture, but I know one or two of those kids on the cover of that book. Um, and so, um, and that was, it was a bit different that um, in Baltimore in terms of what occurred and in many other cities as well as around the country. Yet the city's history of wrestling with the legacy of Brown reveals, I think, the way Americans deal with racial issues. We don't talk about it. And so this avoidance allows segregation to continue. And I think with that, I'm going to introduce Dr. Hal Baum. Baltimore is a remarkable city in that this many people would like to be here talking about school desegregation rather than watching the Orioles play the Yankees at the ballpark this evening. So I guess it's a calculation of which makes you more uncomfortable. Um, I'm pleased to see a number of people here, and I've talked with some of you in the past, and some of you have helped me understand the story as well as I think I understand it. And some of the others of you here I haven't met, and I'm willing to imagine that uh, you may have experienced segregation, may have been here and been part of school desegregation, and you have stories to tell or impressions to offer afterwards, and I look forward to hearing those as well. And I think it's important we simply try to get the story as well as we can get the story of whatever happens so that we can learn as much as we can about how we got to where we are. And insofar as we think there have been missteps, we can have some idea about why we may have misstepped and learn from those missteps. We'll invent our own, but at least we'll learn from those that went before us. So I think that's important in trying to get a story straight. And there's a, um, a troupe in England, the Reduced Shakespeare Company, which does all of Shakespeare's plays, I think in about an hour and a half. And I will give you about 50 years of history in about 25 minutes. So it's not quite Shakespeare, but I will try to condense a lot into a short period of time. And I'd like to begin and talk about the story we tell ourselves about uh, school desegregation in Baltimore. And I would focus on the version that we told ourselves in 2004, which was the 50th anniversary of Brown and of the desegregation of Baltimore City Schools. And the story was something like this. A principled, courageous, liberal school board immediately after the Supreme Court decision voted unanimously to desegregate our schools. And they contrast with school boards throughout the South in most of the border districts on the eastern shore of Maryland and in the southern counties of Maryland. And it was a striking act, and we, we feel proud of that. And then I think in... 
2004, we also told ourselves a story which had been recently rediscovered, at least by those who hadn't participated in it, which was the story of Polly. And in 1952, the school board had uh, voted to admit uh, 16 black boys to Baltimore Polytechnic Institute. So the Baltimore City Schools were really desegregated in 1952, two years before Brown, and that was an extraordinary act. And so I think these are really remarkable accomplishments by our city school board, but they're only part of the whole story. And I'd like to call some attention to some additional parts of the story here at the beginning, and then I'll talk about some more later on. Um, one of the things I would add in beginning the story is that the events in 1952 and 54 followed a two-decade two campaign by black community leaders pushing to improve the quality of black children's education in Baltimore City. So it's important to put them into the story. And the second thing which is important to call attention to is the peculiarities of the uh, desegregation policy selected by the school board in 1954. And it had a couple qualities. One was that the school board voted to end desegregation, um, but they made, uh, they voted to end segregation, but made desegregation or integration totally voluntary. In other words, they said parents would have free choice of where to send their children for school. And depending upon the choices of black parents and in particular white parents, either desegregation would come to pass or it wouldn't. And then the second peculiar quality of the desegregation policy is that the school board selected a policy for ending racial segregation that said nothing about race. In other words, it treated all students as if they had no race, as if they were simply individuals. So I think the policy presents us with a couple puzzles. And the first puzzle is how a liberal school board, at this point of eight whites and one black, who voted to desegregate, nevertheless chose a policy that at the time, and at least certainly within about five years, could be seen to be inefficacious in accomplishing desegregation. So that's the first, first puzzle I'd like to take a look at. And the second puzzle, which is part of the story, is that black leaders encouraged the school board to adopt this policy. The NAACP took credit for the boards adopting it, and black leaders in Baltimore continued to endorse the policy just as the board maintained the policy for a period of two decades. The Afro and the NAACP supported the policy, despite the fact that it did little to desegregate schools. So this is the part of the second part of the puzzle. And strikingly, blacks in Baltimore were unusual among black communities in the United States in supporting free choice as a desegregation policy. The other thing that's striking is, in Baltimore, no civil rights group, no parent group, ever sued the school board to do anything further. And if you think about the number of lawsuits throughout the South, lawsuits throughout the North, after 1954, there was no suit against the Baltimore school board to do more than free choice desegregation. So that's important to keep in mind as we try to uh, riddle through the story. So I'd like to begin with the uh, black community leaders campaign to improve the quality of black children's education. And let, let's, start this around, let's start this around 1935 when Lily Mae Jackson, at the urging of Carl Murphy, took the reins of the Baltimore branch of the NAACP and brought it back to life by recruiting a lot of new members. Carl Murphy, who was publisher and editor at the Afro, joined forces with her and worked through the NAACP to launch a campaign to improve the quality of schooling for black children. 
uh, Juanita Jackson Mitchell, Lily Mae Jackson's daughter, was also one of the leaders in this uh, prolonged effort. I'll describe the conditions of the school quickly. Um, the the so-called colored schools were overcrowded, children were on shifts, buildings were decrepit, they were unsanitary, many had poor lighting and poor ventilation, some lacked indoor plumbing, uh, some were fire, were fire traps, a number of them had coal stoves, which were both unsanitary and dangerous. A um, number of them had rats, few of them had adequate supplies and books, and in some of them, two children sat in the same chair. And a number of these schools had once been schools for white children, but the school board uh, certified at some point they were no longer fit for white children, so the school number was changed, the school name was changed, and these had been reopened as schools for black children. So these were the conditions of the schools about which the NAACP and the Afro and others were concerned in the mid-1930s. Um, black classes were about 10% larger than white classes, and if you look at the per-pupil per value of the buildings that black and white children went to, uh, black children's buildings were valued at about one-third of what white children's buildings were valued as. And the operating budgets per children, um, for black children, about 85% of the operating budgets uh, per white children. So in a number of ways, less money was spent than the buildings were um, in worse shape. Throughout the 1940s, the NAACP made efforts to publicize these conditions, and they kept asking the school board to make improvements for a couple kinds of reasons. One is they said, if separate schools are supposed to be equal, then we want these schools to be equal. But they also meant, if you're going to have segregation, we want it to be more expensive. You'll, you'll pay for it. And consistently, the uh, school board did nothing, nothing of any significance in response. Finally, in 1947, and I'm Moving very quickly, but in 1947, the NAACP, uh, the, the Afro first, uh, launched a campaign to switch from equalizing schools to arguing for desegregating schools altogether. And this was in conjunction with changes in the national position of the NAACP, which is to say we're no longer concerned about having equal separate schools, but we want one set of schools altogether. In 1952, Furman Templeton, who was the director of the Baltimore Urban League, decided that he would launch a campaign to admit black boys to the A course at uh, Poly. And he was joined by the NAACP in this campaign. And their argument was, uh, there is no program that could be equal to the uh, A course at Poly. The school board attempted quickly to ask the superintendent to conjure up one at uh, Douglas High School, and they said, that's not going to be equal to the A course at Poly. They went before the school board, and they said, here, uh, we want these black boys admitted to Poly because there can't be an equal separate program. And the school board voted five to three to admit the black boys to Poly. So that's 1952. What's important about the story, two things. One is, this was two years before Brown. The second thing that's important is it was a result of an initiative and a campaign by black community organizations. So I think that's, that's real important in looking at how did these things come to pass. At the same time, there's other parts of the story in 1952 and 1953. Uh, the NAACP put forth uh, six boys to be admitted to the printing program at Mergenthaler. Uh, there was no printing program at Carver. And Carl Murphy, who ran a, ran a newspaper and hired pressmen, wanted trained black pressmen to work for him. So he was very concerned to get them into Mervo, and the school board turned them down. Uh, 
There was an effort by the NAACP to get 23 black girls into Western High School at this time, and the school board turned them down as well. The NAACP then filed litigation in separate venues, in separate courts, for both the Mergenthaler case and the Western case, in each case arguing the student should be admitted, but also segregation should be overthrown altogether. And the city attorney said... um, School segregation cases are making their way towards the Supreme Court. Why don't we sit back? Let's see what happens. Maybe these suits won't be necessary. Let's wait and see. And the NAACP says, okay, we'll wait and see. So as the cases are moving towards a decision by the Supreme Court, and Thurgood Marshall, who is from Baltimore, is in touch with people here, a group of black leaders meet and plot strategy for trying to influence school officials if the case goes the right way. So a group of people that included Carl Murphy, Lily Mae Jackson, Juanita Jackson Mitchell, W.A.C. Hughes, Martin Jenkins, and occasionally Thurgood Marshall when he could get to town, uh, developed a strategy for thinking about how would they influence the school board. They invited Superintendent John Fisher to come to the Afro offices, and they urged him to take quick action, and they said they wanted two things. One is they wanted students desegregated, they wanted students mixed, But they also wanted teachers desegregated because at that time, black teachers taught black students and white teachers taught white students. So this was the case they made in anticipation of the court decision. And then on May 17, 1954, the Supreme Court ruled nine to nothing that separate schools were inherently unequal schools. A week later, the Baltimore School Board voted unanimously to end 87 years of school segregation in Baltimore. A week after that, they adopted the policy that would implement this decision. And the policy was one of open enrollment or freedom of choice, meaning any student was free to transfer to any school of his or her choosing. In other words, to make the point again, any integration would be voluntary. Um, The one thing important to note is that free choice was an historic policy in Baltimore. Going back to the late 19th century, Baltimore always had free choice. Any white student could go to any white school. Any black student could go to any so-called colored school. Um, Baltimore never had school zones. Now, one obvious important change got made, so anyone could now choose to go to any school. But in this sense, it was a continuous policy, so that's some kind of weight in, in favor of the policy. So, but still the question is, how come, uh, despite the uh, burden of um, tradition? And so I'd like to look at how John Fisher, who was superintendent in 1954, thought about government and the role of government in people's lives. He had become superintendent in 1953 when his predecessor died, and the Baltimore Sun asked him about his political philosophy. And he referred back to the founding fathers of the nation and said he had been influenced by their thinking. And so I'm going to read a quote from a Baltimore Sun reporter. It's a paraphrase of his words, but I think it's a fair rendering of his words. He says, government should be as decentralized as possible with as high a degree of local autonomy as can be achieved. The present tendency to do things collectively should be counteracted by providing more opportunities for individual initiative. So now it's 1954, and consistently what he proposes and what the board agrees to is that desegregation um, should rest on individual choice. In other words, no student would be required to attend any particular school, and that's what he emphasized. 
The other thing he said, and his words became city policy, is that, quote, the race of the pupil shall not be a consideration in government decisions about where students go to school. In other words, every student is just an individual without any race. Um, There were two meanings to this term. One is he wanted to end the use of race in uh, segregating students, so students wouldn't be identified in that way. But the second thing he meant, and I think this is important to pay attention to, is the school board would not take children's race into account in ending segregation. They wouldn't look. Parents would have choices, and wherever students end up was where they would end up. And the Superintendent Fisher said explicitly school officials didn't have a preference about the racial makeup of schools that resulted from parents' choice. The only thing that mattered to them was that parents were free to make these choices. Now, someone who had lived in Baltimore in 1954, and I imagine a number of school officials might have been among them, could have made three observations that were germane to guessing about how would free choice play out. First thing they would have observed is that most black schools were outmoded, dilapidated, and unsafe, meaning uh, whatever parents' race or racial views, these weren't good choices to make. They weren't choices they would pick for their children. Second observation they would make was that the University of Maryland, my institution, had limited black teacher training by refusing to admit black students. It did what a number of other southern and border states did, which was it offered scholarships to blacks who could get admitted to college or college or university outside the state of Maryland, saying, we're happy to pay for you to go to college, but elsewhere. And a number of blacks went to very distinguished institutions, got good educations. A number of them came back to Maryland and became teachers, and presumably were good teachers. But the bulk of blacks who became teachers at this time had gone to Coffin, and Coffin was a segregated, normal school. Um, its teaching staff were full-hearted, but uh, not too well-trained. It didn't have a library worth the name. The facilities were deficient. So teachers with good intentions went through but didn't receive the training that white teachers got at Towson or other black teachers got elsewhere. And again, because teachers were segregated, the concentration of these teachers in historically black schools didn't provide an attraction to uh, parents, particularly white parents, in thinking about where, which school would they choose for their child to attend. And I think the third thing to keep in mind, and this may be hard for us to imagine or maybe not, is in 1954, very few blacks and whites had contact with one another. Uh, They may have had commercial relationships with one another. Whites may have employed blacks. But very few whites and blacks knew people of the other race, let alone considered them friends. So there was a great deal of anxiety at the racial boundary. So that whatever parents' desires for their children, uh, people were just very uneasy about choosing anything associated with the other race. So I, th- I think there are two kinds of obstacles here when we talk about on, on the paper there, were, uh, there was free choice, but I think there are two things in the way. One was that historically black schools presented few choices, and the other one that f- was that few families felt emotionally free to choose, bl- uh, I'm sorry, felt emotionally free to choose anything besides what they already had. Now, what the school board might have done was to renovate or, or replace a number of the black schools, It might have integrated faculties. It might have provided additional training for teachers. 
It might have engaged in human relations efforts to deal with people's anxiety, but it did none of these things as if none of the problems existed. So that's, that's a little bit about school officials. I'd like to move and talk about uh, black leaders at this time and how some in the black community thought. Again, the NAACP took credit, they took considerable public credit for pushing the board to adopt the policy and they continued to endorse it. The Afro headlined it. The black community publicized the policy a lot. School officials didn't publicize it very much. And the Afro had a headline very quickly afterwards which said, integration means more opportunities. But what they meant was opportunities for black individuals much more than for the race as a collectivity. Uh, the article noting that children had different abilities and needs said, the Baltimore school system maintains schools and general classes to fit the needs of the average child, whether a formal or a vocational career is planned. The same for children with superior ability and for those whose ability is limited. In other words, desegregation meant uh, enabling individual black children to differentiate themselves. And what's noteworthy is there was no demand here for any particular educational result, uh, simply a request for removal of past restraints. Betty Murphy Phillips, who was Carl Murphy's daughter, wrote a, wrote a weekly opinion column in the Afro, and she wrote an op-ed piece about this time shortly after the school board decision. And she wrote that she looked forward to, quote, the next 15 years when we get all our young people, white and colored, to stop thinking in terms of race. Thank goodness the Baltimore School Board has taken the first step by abolishing all racial designation in assignment of students. In other words, she's taking and the paper is taking the same position as the liberal school officials in disregarding children's race. What I want to emphasize also is no one is demanding the board deliberately to mix students. No one in the black community in leadership is demanding this. In other words, they're taking the same position as liberal school officials and emphasizing student choice free of government uh, coercion. All right, so how did it come out? Let's, let's take a look at what happened. In the fall of 1954, they opened schools. There was the first semester under desegregation. That time, if you can imagine, there were 150,000 students in Baltimore schools, 60% uh, white, 40% black. Of 58,000 black students, little under 3% chose to attend historically white schools. Most of them were from middle class or elite families. Of 87,000 white students, and the numbers are hard to pin down, but it's either three or six chose to attend historically black schools. If it's six and you're doing the math, it's 0.007%. So let, let's let this play out for four years. We'll come back in 1958. So people have had a chance to get used to it. They see how it works. In 1958, now about a quarter of blacks are in formerly white schools. And of 86,000 whites, now we're up to 58 who are in uh, formerly black schools. So that's 0.07% at this point. We're still close to zero. The pattern that emerged over the next few years was one of temporary desegregation, resegregation, which meant that historically white schools became all black, um, departure of whites from schools for a variety of reasons. Some of them related to school desegregation, others related to other kinds of changes in the city. 
and growing segregation of the schools. In 1960s, schools became majority black. Still, there are no demands from anyone for a more directive policy, uh, more directive in the sense of deliberately mixing white and black students. Now I'm going to tell a little bit of the subsequent history, and the subsequent history is generally not part of the story we tell ourselves about school desegregation in Baltimore. So we'll go up to 1963. There was a group of 28 black and white parents who called themselves the 28 Parents. And they protested continuing segregation in Baltimore City schools. And they said it was caused by system policies and system practices. And they were joined by the local NAACP and the national NAACP in protesting these policies. And one of the practices that was most problematic was the free choice transfer at the center of this whole desegregation system. In other words, what would happen sometimes is white principals would say to white parents, our school is becoming blacker, why don't you transfer your children out? Or when black, black parents would make requests for transfers, uh, sometimes the principals would discourage them from making the transfers, and sometimes principals of receiving schools would say, no, we're not going to let your child in, you don't have a good reason for requesting a transfer. In other words, blacks had restricted choices, and whites for that matter, who wanted mixed schools, also had limited choices. And the effect of all of this was to bottle up black students in a relatively small number of schools and force a significant number of them to attend school on shifts, four hours a day rather than the full five-hour day. So the NAACP chose, uh, threatened to sue. The parents decided to negotiate with the school board. And again, they're only demanding truly free choice. I want to emphasize that. No one's demanding form of, a forced mixing of any kind. And the school board goes along. They said, sure, we'll change the policies, because after all, they believed in free choice. But at this point, nine years have gone by. So free choice became understood as the policy it had been. Segregation had set in over the nine years. And we look at, I just want to look quickly at some numbers and look at what the conditions of schools were in terms of the racial makeup in the early 60s. In 1965, schools were 61% black. I want to give you two numbers for elementary school children in 1965. Um, five out of six black elementary school children attended schools at least 90% black. Two out of three white elementary school students attended schools at least 90% white. In other words, black families who wanted racially balanced schools, either because they believed in integration or else because they believed lots of resources went wherever white children went and they wanted to make sure to have their children with lots of white children, for either of these reasons, they really had very few choices because whites weren't making compatible choices. So I want to make, I'm going to make now two observations. There are two parts of the same observation. Um, first is free choice could be considered to have failed in a couple of ways. Uh, one is it uh, didn't desegregate schools significantly. And the other is it didn't obviously stem white flight. Let me say the same thing again. Um, whites are leaving the public schools even though their children have relatively small chance of encountering black children. So I think that's a fact we need to try to grapple with. I think that's an important thing worth our discussing um, afterwards. So we'll move ahead to the mid-1960s, and we're rushing through our actually complex history. Um, the mid-1960s, as 
Some of you recall, we're a time of uh, considerable civil rights activity in Baltimore and nationally, and people are beginning to rethink uh, free choice, nationally and in Baltimore as well. Baltimore School Board hires two integrationist superintendents, uh, Lawrence Paquin and Thomas Sheldon. Uh, they both favored busing, but they both recognized Baltimoreans didn't. And the 1967 uh, mayoral campaign, in the campaign, busing, um, Peter Angelos was a candidate. He's moved on since then. Uh, Thomas D'Alessandro was a candidate. A lot of talk about busing, school desegregation, uh, racial mixing in schools, and so forth. And Tommy D'Alessandro wins on a platform of improving schools and further integrating the schools. And he begins as mayor in January uh, 1968, and shortly afterwards, Martin Luther King is killed. Riots follow in Baltimore City. At the end of the riots, Governor Spiro Agnew, whom some of you may recall, summons 100 moderate black leaders to his office in Annapolis and uh, lectures them and says they're responsible for the violence, they're responsible for the riots. And one by one, they walk out of the meeting with him. And then after the meeting, he gets hundreds of telegrams from whites saying, at last someone is saying what the white man is thinking, and you should run for president. So I, I think the changes in the city were complex, but let me summarize what I think happened uh, as a result of those events in 1968. I, I think the riots pushed whites back from supporting integration, and I think the aftermath, meaning Agnew's lecture and the telegrams to Agnew, uh, discouraged blacks from hoping for integration. But timing is often ironic. Uh, the day before Martin Luther King was killed, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund was before the Supreme Court arguing a case about the constitutionality of free choice. The case was called Green versus New Kent County in, in Virginia. They delivered their opinion um, a couple weeks after the riots, the end of April. And what they said was, free choice is unconstitutional unless it has the result actually of integrating schools. Good intentions don't count, good process doesn't count unless the process has an outcome. So Community Relations Council Director David Glenn uh, issued a request to uh, George Russell, who was the city solicitor, saying, I'd like a formal opinion from you regarding the implications of the Supreme Court decision for our desegregation policy here. And George Russell, as uh, most of you probably know, was the first black city solicitor appointed by Tommy D'Alessandro. And Russell said to D'Alessandro, you know, it might be a problem if I respond to this. And D'Alessandro said, go ahead. So Russell had gone to segregated schools. He was actually fond of segregated schools because he felt they were important community institutions. He wasn't a big fan. He was fond of all black schools voluntarily. And he wasn't a big fan of uh, integration, but he said the Supreme Court decision was straightforward. And he said that Baltimore's free choice policy was constitutionally unacceptable because it didn't result in integration. So I'd like to look at the reactions of uh, some key Baltimore officials following that. Uh, Mayor D'Alessandro, who had encouraged Russell to respond, who appointed school board members, uh, didn't call for a new policy, didn't say anything. School board president Francis Murnahan, who later became a distinguished federal court judge, uh, explained why integration was difficult and said he'd defer to the superintendent. Superintendent Thomas Sheldon, who was from out of town and was struggling to develop relations with his staff, said he hadn't seen the court decision yet and he'd comment on it when he did. 
and he never commented on it. Now, one person was outspoken. Uh, William Donald Schaefer, who was city council president at the time, not one to mince words, and he said he wasn't going to discuss the court decision. He wasn't going to talk about desegregation policy because, quote, immediately the question of race comes in. So city officials, and I think he spoke for lots of people, City officials reaffirmed free choice. They were quite clear. They didn't want to talk about anything associated with race, particularly so close uh, to the riots. I'm going to cut to the end of the story and tell a fascinating story much more quickly than I should, but not limited time. We moved to 1974, so it's six years later at this point. The Federal Office for Civil Rights... Uh, directs Baltimore City and 84 other school districts around the country to develop a plan to integrate schools, in Baltimore's case, at last, or else risk losing federal education funds uh, under Title VI of the 64 Civil Rights Act. And at this point, Baltimore schools are 70% black, so the arithmetic is getting harder and harder in terms of mixing black and white students in the city. Uh, in response, the federal request, the school board, Superintendent Roland Patterson, and others in the city insisted free choice would somehow still work. Only the NAACP and the Afro, and actually Archbishop Borders, who was new in town at that time, uh, conspicuously advocated integration. And uh, the Afro and NAACP were uh, talking about busing if necessary. The school board, however, adopted a modest plan affecting only 20,000 out of 180,000 students in the city, and the Office for Civil Rights then moved to start proceedings to withhold federal funds. In January of 1976, then, now Mayor Schaefer sent the city's attorneys to federal court to get an injunction against the Office for Civil Rights to stop them from taking money from city schools. And the argument of the city lawyers was... um, The city needs the freedom to desegregate in ways that are consistent with local norms and cultures and community conditions and so forth. The city got an injunction in district court, which which meant that the Office for Civil Rights could continue to negotiate but couldn't withhold money. So it cuts their legs out from underneath them. They appealed, and the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals upheld the injunction. So this is the victory for the city. Following this court victory, the school board never did anything else of significance to desegregate uh, students. There followed another decade of intermittent, toothless, fruitless negotiations between the federal government and Baltimore City. And finally, in 1987, the U.S. Department of Education sent a letter to Superintendent Alice Pinderhughes saying, the federal government determined that Baltimore City had done everything within its power to end the vestiges of legal segregation. Let me, tr- let me try to do some analysis of this, and I invite your thoughts as well when I'm done. I want to try to explain the puzzles in the story. Again, the two puzzles are, one, a liberal school board espoused desegregation but adopted and stayed with a policy that uh, at least it uh, could not, but at least did not accomplish it. And black leaders wanted desegregation, but endorsed and stayed with a policy that didn't accomplish it. And they never sued the board to do anything more. Let's start with the liberal school board, and I'd like to speculate about why they, they acted as they did. First, there's a matter of history. Free choice, after all, was an historic policy. 
But I, I think the ways that the policy served school officials' interests in, invo- in avoiding racial conflict made the historic policy seem reasonable to them. Uh, for example, free choice might have seemed least likely to provoke white resistance because it didn't force anything upon them. Second, giving choice to parents removed officials from responsibility for intervening in race relations. Uh, and the school board didn't have to deal with race. Third, the emphasis on choice over outcomes, in other words, the process of choice over any particular racial makeup as an outcome, removed the board from responsibility for monitoring desegregation. And finally, and throughout, uh, the emphasis on individual choice eliminated race as a subject that anyone had to talk about. But I think, and this, this is an important argument here, I think school officials didn't simply choose the policy for such self-interested reasons. I think it was also a natural outgrowth of their liberal thinking. And I, I want to be specific now about what, what I think this liberal thinking was. It's a way of thinking continues to today. It's a common, normal way that Americans think about society and think about government. And I just highlight three principles, the three premises of liberalism, and then I want to look at the ways in which school policy was just consistent with them. The the first liberal notion is that society consists of autonomous, self-interested individuals. They're not members of, they're not influenced by groups, such as races, for example. And consistently, uh, school officials saw saw children simply as individuals. They were devoid of racial identities as far as public policy went, and they weren't influenced by racial identities as far as public policy went. The The second important element in liberalism is that since individuals have different notions of what's good, um, it's important to emphasize the right of individual choice. Let everyone decide what's in their interests and give everyone free choice, give them a process that enables them to choose and value the process of choosing over getting any specific outcome out of it. And that's, in fact, what the school board did. School officials assumed families would make reasonable choices with regard to the children's educational interests, and let it go at that. And because they didn't care, because school officials didn't care about the outcome, they saw no reason to regulate or to limit individual choices. Finally, the last liberal principle that I call attention to is one of limiting government action so that government doesn't interfere with people identifying their interests and doesn't interfere with people pursuing their interests. And this is essentially what the school board, as an agent of government, did. They assumed all students could make free choices, and they saw no reason to, as one might have said, intervene in, or one might have thought, interfere with individual choices. So intellectually for the school board, this kind of policy made sense. They developed and stayed with a policy that seemed like common sense in the normal American way of thinking about things. And I would add, and I think this is an important observation that it also did serve their political and psychological interests in avoiding conflict over race. So both it made it hard to think about race, but I think people were relieved not to come to be thinking about race and having to deal with it. I'd like to speculate about why black community leaders endorsed free choice and why they didn't sue, and then let's pull it together. I think Baltimore's middle-class blacks, as middle-class blacks in many cities, saw themselves as the talented tenth, as W.E.B. Du Bois characterized them, rising through education to lead the black community. They thought individualistically. In a sense, they were liberals themselves, 
very much white, like the white liberals with the exception and the important exception that they considered race much more important in reckoning of things than did white liberals. Also, middle-class black families had familiarity with the larger world in which there were white schools out there. They had money to transport their students to schools outside the neighborhood. And not a minor thing, they had money for the children to dress respectably so they would feel comfortable going to school with middle-class white children elsewhere. In other words, the policy worked for them. Additionally, I think free choice by emphasizing individual choice and not saying anything about race, avoided talk about race, and that was a good thing in the eyes of black leaders because then it minimized the likelihood of people engaging in conflict over race when they could talk instead about individual choice. Also, after 87 years of racial segregation, I think blacks didn't want anyone telling them where to go to school, not even the growing number of black school officials. They just wanted to go somewhere of their own choosing. And the last thing worth noting is that free choice didn't impose integration on blacks who preferred all black schools. It simply removed the stigma of attending all black schools. So lastly, I'd like to speculate about why no one sued because it's, it's the dog that didn't bark. Uh, suing took place in lots of other districts. I think the first part of the explanation is all these reasons why this policy worked for blacks or why they favored it. In addition, Baltimore blacks had a policy of lobbying and working behind the scenes, meeting with white leaders, choosing to negotiate things in private rather than taking to the streets. So Clarence Mitchell, who was the 101st senator and the lobbyist for the NAACP in Washington from Baltimore, was one proponent, one, one model of this pattern of you negotiate with people behind the scenes and get more that way. So I think partly it was that style. In addition, finally, in 1974, when the Office for Civil Rights threatened Baltimore City and there was a lot of conflict over what was the school board going to choose and was it going to finally get to integration, the NAACP and the Afro started talking about suing. There's lots of talking about suing back and forth. But I think at that point, the interest in the local black community integration had really waned. And in terms of the National NAACP Legal Defense Fund, which had the money for litigation, their attention was elsewhere in more complex and important places like Chicago and a number of very difficult northern cities where they were investing. So I think that's, those are significant reasons why the suit never came to pass. So I'd just like to conclude by summarizing some of these additions to the story we tell ourselves about school desegregation here. First part of the story is that black community leaders were important in pushing school officials to act. Second, the school board adopted and continued a desegregation policy that only modestly and temporarily desegregated schools. Third thing that's important to note is that black community leaders urged and endorsed and stayed with a policy of voluntary desegregation. Finally, the, the last few events show us that the school board and the city government resisted federal efforts to increase school integration. Overall, I think one theme that runs through the story is it's a story about how Baltimore deals with race. Uh, we avoid talking about it, and we keep government out of it. Thanks very much. Um. I would like to confront another um, possibility why um, f the free choice policy was in place in the beginning. Um, Baltimore was the first city to 
legislate where black people could live in the whole country. Um, they had a legislative policy for black people and an unwritten policy for Jews. Um, so I would um, may contend, I'll get your opinion, that they understood that it was unlikely that because of this policy about where blacks could live, that was unlikely even before desegregation, that blacks would go to their schools because of the way you, um, you, put, you have schools in districts. So I'm raising that as another possibility, why they were so comfortable with the free choice policies. I think it's I think it's a hard question to it's a hard matter to get into people's heads uh, 50 years ago and figure out sort of who had what in mind and what they envisioned. Yeah, no, I, th I think it's a, it's a hard one. I think there may be something to what you have to say. I mean, one of the anticipations of writers in the Afro, for example, was some blacks would make choices to send their children to schools they thought were particularly good and distant from where they lived, but they said at last people can choose neighborhood schools of their liking, parents like, have their like having their children at home, and the anticipation was that where children went to school was really going to reinforce residential patterns, and that was okay as far as they saw that. So I think there's some tie between what you're suggesting and what some of the anticipations were at that time. first required to say that, that I come with a certain point of view, which is that I'm Walter Sondheim's son. I think the thing, there are a couple of things I would say. One is that I think the whole atmosphere of the time was that if you acted like a good liberal, good things would happen. The other thing I would observe also is that this was not the school board you're used to. This was an elite school board picked out for specific reasons. There was a Jewish member. I think there were two Catholic members. I'm not sure. There was a black member. It was a very different school board than any place I've ever known because it was appointed rather than, not just because it was appointed, but because it was appointed in the way it was. I'd also point out two other things. One is that this was always a race to avoid the State Department of Education whose director, who the state's school superintendent was a man named Thomas Pullen. And I don't think anybody would describe Tom Pullen as a as a liberal on race. i rather not go any farther, but if you care, you could read Fraser Smith's book, and, uh, and he will be perfectly clear, and I'm sure lots of people in this room would go farther um, on that. Um, I think another problem that the board had in mind, not so much in 1954-55, but in the next couple of years, was there was great concern that there would be concerns about African-American teachers. They had, in fact, received inferior educations, and I think they were scared that there would be some rebellion because they were a very important part of the African-American middle class. And I'm not sure that this can be quantified or even substituted. I can tell you from conversation that it was borne in mind. Um, and I think the other thing, which is sort of includes almost all of what you said and what I just said is I think the school board partly felt this was what they could get away with. Uh, whether they thought of going any farther, I myself doubt. But if you go a couple of years later, I think the school board, because it was a dependent board on the 
no matter how quote unquote elite it was, felt constrained uh, by the circumstance. I left Baltimore for 20 years in 1965, so I really can't speak of a large part of what you discussed. And in fact, just to make it worse in terms of what I know about school desegregation, I went to Kansas City, which is a whole different and even worse story. Thank you. I don't have lust to add. I think that's, that's a good story. But I think what's one of the important things in the story you're telling is it's hard. One, it's hard to know because people aren't around anymore. But even a few years ago, very few of the original people were around. And they didn't remember well what was in their minds in 1954. School board abhorred segregation. But what they thought the alternative was, what they expected to happen, what they wanted, I'm not sure the question occurred in such simple terms to them. I imagine some had visions of, and there's a picture on the front cover of the book, which is a picture from the Baltimore Sun of some school during that first year, and that's the vision of the future for some black and white children sitting together and growing up together and becoming part of a new democratic society. Some may have had that vision in mind. Others may have been very fuzzy about what was going to happen and may have had some worries about what was going to happen. At least a couple school board members had their children in private schools, so their decisions weren't affecting their families, and for better or for worse, they were free to make choices without personal consequences. So I think the question you're asking is an important hard one. Or one of the questions you're raising is an important hard one, which is what did people expect to happen next? And I, the only other thing I'd, I'd add is they, they were trying something no one else had tried in 1954. There wasn't a, rec there wasn't a recipe book. There wasn't a menu of things you can look at. If you want this to happen, try this. They were conducting an experiment. The interesting question, so they might not have known, they couldn't have known what would happen, but the interesting question is, if you come back in 1959 or 1960 and you've seen the result of the first experiment and you're interested in desegregation, why might you not try something else? So I think that's an important question to think about at that point. Uh, yes, um, you, you mentioned that uh, George Russell was a product of segregated school system, and assuming that all students, whether in white schools or black schools, receive the same diploma, and today we're very concerned with the graduation rates, I would be interested in what was the graduation rate of black students in black segregated schools before Brown v. Board of Education. That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if someone here has. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm going to raise a can of worms right now, open a can of worms. Somebody's got to do it. I believe, first of all, Baltimore City College, class of 64. Anybody, any other black knights in the room? City forever. Now, I remember in 1961 as a sophomore seeing racist slurs in the bathrooms in the, uh, of City College. I remember being questioned by some of my fellow, uh, white fellow students, what did you get on such a test? What did you get on such a test? When I answered 95, 98, 100, questions stopped coming after a while. Now, I'm going to say this, and we think, hey, y'all think about it. This country is still, in 2010, acting like 
and we're all adults here, acting like the teasing virgin who never really gets down to where it's at, and you all know what I'm talking about. Now, I believe part of the uh, problem was, and we're going back even way before Brown versus Board of Education, part of the problem was that there were some people on the school boards who didn't want our children, I'm talking about black children, and I'm going to say this, there's no other way to say it, how dumb some white kids were. Look, in 1907, the uh, city fathers of San Francisco had a, something called the Gentleman's Agreement, where they, were, they decided that children of Japanese, American children of Japanese descent would not be allowed to go to school with American white children. Now, part of that, a good part of that was racism, obviously. But I believe that a big part of it, too, and nobody talks about it because it's too painful, but we've got to talk about it, is that they were afraid that some of those Japanese students would show those white kids up. Yeah. In addition, that's what I think about the part of, of what the board versus um, Brown versus Board of Education was about. They were afraid that some of us would show some white kids up. And, and, and not only that, we would find out how dumb some of them were. They talk about us being dumb. Okay, some of us are lacking academically. I can't deny that. But you think about it when you all go home tonight. You think about what I said. And, and if it's painful, hey, don't get mad at me. But it's the truth. And, and look, this country's going to have a problem until first it acknowledges it's got a problem and then starts to deal with it, meaningfully deal with it. Thank you very much. I've been thinking about uh, uh, your hypotheses about why this uh, liberal school board uh, fought hard to keep uh, what we called open enrollment. And I was sort of sitting here thinking because I was on the board six years of this th through this period. I was appointed at the end of 1968 and served until uh, December of 1975. And, and I think you are, are right that much of it really had to do with, with what you describe, I think correctly, as kind of a liberal philosophy. But there, I want to add there was an educational component to it. I mean, I very much uh, uh, f resisted any effort to end the open, what we call the open enrollment policy um, for this educational reason. It, it, was, it was my thinking and the thinking of, I know of Jim Griffin, uh, that we wanted to keep out of the equation one factor that might be a source of failure. Students being forced to go to a particular school, white or black, any particular school. We did not want zoning at the elementary, the secondary, or any level. Our thinking was that Baltimore City had X number of students, and any student in Baltimore should go to be able to go to any other school, and where you your school choice should not at all be tied to your neighborhood. And at that time, students got a free bus pass. So not only did you have the choice of deciding to go to another school, maybe go across to another white or black, it doesn't matter, but you would have free transportation to do so. And, and we, we, we did not like the idea of this being a poor neighborhood 
and therefore perhaps the student in their own mind or maybe in reality being forced because they happen to be in a poor neighborhood also attending a poorly supported school. So there was this educational component in addition to these other points that you made of, 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 of sort of keeping government out of it and um, I mean, and, and, I mean to, the, to this day it's still my view that, uh, that boundaries uh, such as city and county should not limit where one should goes, could, could, can go to school. I think a kid in Baltimore City ought to be able to go to a school in Howard County or Montgomery County. Uh, it's, it's a state function. It's paid for uh, essentially through state dollars that any Marylander should go, be able to go to any school. And so compli completely independent of this racial notion of factors uh, was this, this philosophy. There, one other thing I'll just introduce to the picture. So, but the, 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 the administration didn't like this. They, administrators want to administer. They want to create, they, they want to tell people what to do. And uh, there was this notion that, well, we could create zones because all the schools are alike. So if you zone in and make it more efficient, uh, uh, you aren't really discriminating against anyone because the schools are all alike. So that's why we introduced the magnet school plan, to have the schools not be alike, to have high schools that had a particular focus and so that the students from all over the city who were interested in the environment or they would go there. The students all, all, all across the city are interested in some other focus. It was really introduced as an effort to resist administrative efforts to create zones uh, based on the notion that the schools were all fungible. So it was an effort to intentionally make them different in academic focus so that uh, students uh, would have choices and would have a basis for making uh, a choice. So much of what at least the board from 1969 uh, 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 through 75 was doing really had very little to do with race. We saw that for a variety of reasons, whites were leaving the city and leaving the schools, and so that the school system was becoming overwhelmingly black. And so what, what we were doing had more to do with educational policy and producing the best results because for, for reasons that we did not control, it was clear that, that there really weren't going to be an awful lot of white students in the public schools. want to sell as well as we have literature and time to talk. Any more comments? I, I know you had a chance. Let me um, I think only City College graduates can speak tonight. <laughs> uh, I, I praise your book for laying out the facts of what happened, but there seems to be an underlying implication in what you're saying is that the wrong choices were made by various decision makers. And I would be interested in your second volume where you lay out uh, what you think might have been done and what result you think that might have achieved and measured by what. Um, <coughs> segregation, uh, ending segregation, of course, doesn't mean integration. It means ending segregation. It means ending uh, standards that are based on race. It doesn't naturally follow that something has to happen to provide integration. That's a separate choice that people make. And 
taking Boston, for instance, the, the classic for, uh, Lucas book, uh, Common Ground, on mandatory busing that is an alternative, and perhaps one you're implying, I don't know whether I'm fair in reading this implication into your comments, but that a you seem to uh, not like the liberal choice doctrine and seem to be implying a coercive alternative, which I'm perfectly comfortable with, but if it achieves some better measurable result. And what has happened over the last uh, half century is that Baltimore City public schools are as segregated almost as they were in 1954, but they are segregated worse, in, and this is the implication of the question the gentleman in front of me asking about the graduation rate, for instance, from Douglas or for the black community in 1954, is they're segregated economically. So they are worse off, the, the, much of the African-American community is worse off in many ways, uh, school-wise, today than they were in 1954. So what might have been done, and on Larry Gibson's point about statewide or regional uh, school uh, zoning or school attendance and so forth, uh, what might be done today? You know, if you're looking back 50 years from today, what were liberals doing in 2010 uh, to achieve these results that you want to achieve that they're not doing? Uh, they should be doing. So I look forward to your second volume. Well, I guess the two of us will collaborate on the on the second volume. Um, you've asked ten good questions, and um, I'm not going to attempt to address all of them. Let me let me just talk a little bit about a couple of them. One is the Supreme Court decision said it was it was about separate and equal schools, and the argument of the court decision was taken from the NAACP's psychological argument, which goes schools that are separate, when schools are separate, they say to black children, you're not good enough to attend schools with white children, and the psychological effect, the NAACP argued, was to stigmatize black children and affect their hearts and minds in such a way that they wouldn't be motivated to learn because they feel the world was rigged against them. So there was combined both an argument about civil rights and an argument about, about argued consequences of educational consequences of separation. I mean, what's interesting in this whole history is there's relatively little effort by school board and others to look at what are the effects of different arrangements in terms of children's learning. So there's a lot of numbers game in terms of who's going to school with whom, and often the education... In other words, there's an interesting empirical question. What are the educational consequences of different combinations of children going to class? And there is evidence on that, but that wasn't the kind of question the school board asked. Let me just quickly address one of the first questions. It's an easy and hard question about what they should have done, since there's no parallel universe in which there's another Baltimore in 1954 to go through this again. We can never know. But I want to make one observation about the free choice policy. And this comes back to the question of how come whites were leaving if the chances that their children had contact with black students were relatively small? Well, part of the answer may be any contact might be too much for some white family, so that might be one reason they left. But l let me talk about the permissiveness of free choice and then the value of some kind of coercion without endorsing a specific alternative. Um, in a city where whites and blacks had little contact and whites and blacks were very anxious about one another, and that's something that a couple of the questions suggested here, when you have a free choice arrangement and the school board explicitly says, we're not going to put a finger 
on who goes to school with whom. We're not going to be in charge. It's everyone for yourself. When you have whites and blacks all anxious and everyone says nobody is in charge here, that's a situation calculated to increase people's anxiety. So that if a white family says, we're not real happy about having our child go to school with black children, but it's now the law of the land. School board says we should try it. We're willing to send our child to school with some black children, as long as not an overwhelming number of black children. So they go and they make a choice for a school that seems to satisfy their requirements in April. Come September, everyone's made all these other choices. They take the child to school and discover their child is the only white child in class. And they say, this isn't the choice we wanted to make. So a situation is suddenly one of total uncertainty, and under those kinds of conditions, when people are highly anxious, a policy like free choice feeds the anxiety, and people say the only thing that's certain is to leave the system. So I think one of the effects of this completely uncertain situation was to feed people's anxiety and to contribute to people leaving. Alternative policies would have created some amount of certainty, and let me just talk a little abstractly about it, but talking about some kinds of certainty. School board might have said we'll do something like try to draw zones that include whites and blacks. We'll talk with community organizations. We know they're not going to like all of it, but we'll try to see what boundaries make sense and what people might be willing to live with and so forth. We might try biracial zones. In Princeton, they invented the practice of pairing schools. So an all-black school and an all-white school get put together and all children would go to this one for three years and this one for three years perhaps. Under arrangements like those, two things would be certain. One is black and white children would go to school together. And the other certainty for this hypothetical family I made up is, uh, your child, yes, your child will go to school with black children, but the second certainty is your child won't go to school with an overwhelming number of black children. So now you can make choices. You're still free to leave. But some things are certain. Um, but some of the risk is absorbed by the system. So what specific policy works? I mean, we, and 2010 is different from 1954 and all of that stuff. But I think one of the problems with this policy was it just created uncertainty in a situation where that wasn't a productive way of managing race relations. So we'll collaborate on the book or we'll figure out a way of doing it. I think all the questions are very good.